Whitney Webb is our guest on Geopolitics and Empire. She's a hard-hitting investigative journalist and soon-to-be author. She's written for Mint Press News and is currently writing for The Last American Vagabond and has a new podcast called Unlimited Hangout. We'll be discussing all things COVID-1984. Let me just remind listeners to subscribe to all of our channels on social media, share, like, and leave us a podcast review and rating. If you can, leave a donation via Bitcoin, Patreon, or PayPal. If I were able to receive a certain amount of regular donations, this would enable me to spend much more time developing the Geopolitics and Empire podcast. And finally, I would also urge listeners to subscribe to our email list that includes our podcast interview and a collection of important news headlines. So, Whitney, thanks for coming on Geopolitics and Empire. How are you doing these days? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. You've done a lot of deep factual research on the pandemic situation and the context of what's going on with COVID-19, which in the background include many previous and ongoing developments, uh, patents, plans by government and private sector in the fields of military technology, intelligence, biology, science, uh, you name it, and so on. And you've looked at everything from DARPA to big tech and big pharma, I thought we'd start with the bioterror exercises, which raise huge flags and serve as an important indicator, revealing the true nature of what we're dealing with. You know, if we look at 9-11, yeah, right before 9-11, up to almost 50 war game exercises occurred, and many of which modeled some of the very exact scenarios that happened on the day of 9-11. And both 9-11 and now COVID-19 have been and are being used as a pretext to drive the transformation of our entire economies, political systems, and societies into a new order, which by now I think is quite evidently a system profoundly totalitarian at its heart. You wrote for the first piece uh, at Last American Vagabond covering the 2001 U.S. dark winter bioterror simulation. Uh, there was the Atlantic Storm exercise in 2005. And then last year we had a lot, which was quite strange, you know, crimson contagion, simulating a flu-like illness coming out of China, the urban outbreak, simulating a flu-like illness, event 201, simulating a coronavirus pandemic, and even in September of 2019, a smaller-scale Chinese war game, specifically of a coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan. And the list of exercises is possibly even longer. You can tell us about it. So can you give us kind of like a summary of your view on these exercises, what they mean for you, kind of like what you take away from what has happened there? Right. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, in media now, we're seeing a lot of comparisons and even President Trump make the explicit comparison between coronavirus and 9-11 or coronavirus and Pearl Harbor, which, you know, were events that fundamentally altered uh, life in the United States, um, uh, particularly when there was the state of emergency, you know, being declared for after those various um, events. So, for example, after Pearl Harbor, um, there's a lot of um, people that have pointed out that Pearl Harbor didn't actually need to happen um, and that the United States deliberately did an act that Japan said would result in an attack. And there appears to have been foreknowledge of Pearl Harbor before it happened, but it ended up taking place. Um, and of course, we know that that led to the U.S. entrance into World War II and that a lot of things happened at home during the state of emergency resulting from the war, um, including the internment of Japanese Americans. Also in World War One, uh, during uh, you know for that state of emergency caused by the war, uh, there was a lot of censorship of the media. There was the implementation of civilian spy networks, like the American Protective League, not unlike the contact tracing army they are looking to set up right now um, for coronavirus. 
And of course, with 9-11, as you mentioned, there were numerous simulations of things that did happen on 9-11 that preceded 9-11. These include simulations of planes hitting the Pentagon, even though the Bush administration said the reason they were unable to prevent 9-11 was because of a quote-unquote failure of imagination, because no one could ever think that you know, uh, 90, terrorists would use planes to hit buildings, even though they had simulated that exact um, event a year before. So what's interesting about these simulations that took place last year, specifically Crimson Contagion in Event 201, and to a lesser extent, Urban Outbreak, is that the people that led those simulations have ties to one simulation that preceded um, 9-11 by uh, a, a couple months that was known as Dark Winter. In the case of Urban Outbreak, the person that led that was not involved in Dark Winter, but it was um, performed by the National War College, which is uh, was the employer of two people that co-authored Dark Winter back in 2001. So um, that's not a, as a direct connection as the other two, but still relevant. In the case of Crimson Contagion, the person who led that exercise is the Department of Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, Robert Cadlick. Um, Robert Cadlick participated in the script creation of Dark Winter, and in the case of Event 201, the moderator of that event and one of the sponsors, well, the sp one of the sponsors of that event was uh, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and the director of that center right now is a man named Thomas Inglesby, who was basically the moderator at Event 201. Thomas Inglesby was a co-author of the Dark Winter exercise, along with the former director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Tara O'Toole, who currently works at NQTEL, the CIA's venture capital arm. Um, Tara O'Toole and Inglesby have been involved in numerous simulations over the years, including the 2005 simulation Atlantic Storm, another one called Clade X that I believe took place in 2018 um, in Event 201 and others. Um, events like... Um, Atlantic Storm, which was um, basically dark winter, but uh, not just for the U.S., but in terms of global response to a global pandemic, uh, had the end uh, conclusions uh, or the conclusions of its participants after the exercise finished was global governance. Interesting there. But anyway, um, I've talked about dark winter a lot right now or referenced it. So it's worth um uh, talking about what that exercise was. This uh, exercise called Dark Winter took place at Andrews Air Force Base in June 2001. It simulated a smallpox bioterror attack, but a lot of things that happened at that exercise became very relevant after 9-11. And this includes the fact that the narrative that Saddam Hussein was working with Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan was uh, essentially created. And uh, that, of course, narrative had no basis in actual fact, but ended up being the dominant talking points of a lot of these dark winter participants um, and, of course, of the Bush administration and people in media. And dark winter brought people... Uh, together, uh, brought a lot of those people together, government insiders, uh, people connected to intelligence agencies, people connected to the Project for a New American Century think tank, and people of the press, including the New York Times columnist Judith Miller, very famous for her uh, role in lying uh, the United States into war with Iraq over the uh, weapons of mass destruction lie. Um, Essentially, what this exercise asserted is that Iraq, for various reasons, had a biological weapons program that had um, and had plans to uh, had basically um, unleashed smallpox in the state of Oklahoma and had it spread throughout the United States. And a lot of the um, 
responses of the government during Dark Winter um, included things like declaring martial law through uh, the, um, but by, by, uh, by means of the Insurrection Act. It also, um, in one of these uh, fictional news clips that they used in the exercise, they, sh- they showed um, the National, they talked about the National Guard uh, shooting people trying t- to escape Oklahoma and go to another state civilians. Um, they talked about a lack of protective equipment, um, a lot of things that have actually ended up happening now. And they also talked about the need for online censorship. And this is back in 2001. Um, but the need to... Um, you know, uh, increase online censorship for quote unquote unverified claims about the, the nature of the, the attack and uh, cures for smallpox among other things. Um, and what's very interesting is that at the end of this, um, uh, scenario, they talk about, um, anthrax being sent in the mail in letters to members of the press and other people that was going to be done by Iraq. And of course the anthrax attacks would later take place in Iraq. Um, there were major efforts to blame Iraq for that, even though it ended up being a domestic source. And what's interesting is that several dark winter participants, including former CIA director, James Woolsey and a man named Jerome Hauer ended up being very instrumental in seeding that narrative. Um, even before the anthrax attacks that, um, Saddam Hussein working with Al Qaeda, were going to unleash an anthrax attack on the United States. And this was all seeded in the media, um, in, in the days between nine 11 and news breaking of the first anthrax victim, which took place in, uh, early October. And also during this period of time, several members of Dark Winter seemed to have foreknowledge that there was going to be an anthrax attack. As I mentioned, Judith Miller, she was involved in writing uh, over 20 articles about anthrax being used as a biological weapon between nine, the day 9-11 and uh, the day of the first anthrax victim uh, being pub- uh, publicly acknowledged. Another example being uh, Jerome Hauer, who I mentioned earlier. Um, he was the person that on the day of 9-11 told Dick Cheney's office uh, to take ciproflaxin, which is an antibiotic that prevents anthrax infection. And members of the Bush administration, uh, we don't know how long they were on Cipro for, but were taking Cipro as a precaution to prevent specifically an anthrax attack. From the day of 9-11, it's very possible they were on that for several weeks. It's worth pointing out that they suspected that there was going to be an anthrax attack in the mail and they didn't, you know, recommend that precaution for postal workers, for example, who ended up being um, a lot of the people who ended up dying from anthrax during the attacks. So that is worth pointing out. And it was only really available to government insiders and uh, people in the media um, that including a Washington post colonist said that he also got the tip that apparently originated with Jerome Hauer, who, by the way, on the day of 9-11, was working for Kroll Associates, which is a private security firm uh, with ties to the CIA and also Israeli intelligence that was doing uh, security at the World Trade Center on the day of 9-11. And also at that time, he was national security advisor to the Department of Health and Human Services um, and was very well connected in government during that time. But as I mentioned, he was also one of the, the participants in, in Dark Winter. So a lot of very um, suspect things were going on um, in that exercise that predicted things that would happen just um, just months later, including the motive attack, that there was going to be an anthrax attack, and, and a couple other things. I'm probably forgetting um, <laughs> uh, some things as well. But the fact that those same people involved in Dark Winter were also involved in these exercises um, last year, I think, is very significant. 
also due to the fact that um, reports have come out that intelligence, um, you know, the intelligence community to which a lot of these um, same people are, are connected, um, even according to mainstream reports, expected that there was going to be a coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. as, uh, as early as last November. Which in the case of, you know, um, event 201, that's less than a month after that took place. So it's all very um, uh, disconcerting when we look at the pattern of, you know, of 9-11, for example, the simulations to what happened afterwards and the narratives that were being, that were coming out and a lot of these um, similarities between event 201, Crimson Contagion, Urban Outbreak, um, and things that are playing out right now. Yeah, and just a few of my comments on on that, you know, people should go and read these documents for themselves. You know, after you published on this, I, I had not been aware of Dark Winter. I actually went and skimmed through the Dark Winter actual script as well as Crimson Contagion. And it's shocking the things you will find in these government uh, documents. So I right. urge people to go read them for themselves. I'd also comment that, you know, I taught a course at university in Mexico on international terrorism, where we talked about 9-11, the terrorist attacks in London and Madrid. And I was... Um, I was the kind of teacher where we looked at both sides, right? Of whether it's a false flag operation. I taught students the concept of a false flag operation, and we looked at the official story. And it was interesting when you looked even at the London and Madrid attacks, I think it was 2004 and 2005, mm -hmm. they were running simulations as well right. <laughs> on that same day. So what are the coincidences yeah. we have? And, you know, all of these uh, attacks were... They're running simulations, the police forces and the, and the military and the government. Uh, and then going back to Pearl Harbor, you know, I was taught in Geneva where I studied diplomacy, uh, my, where I studied geopolitics. We, I was also taught that Pearl Harbor, that it was actually induced by the U.S., where the U.S. Right. have a, um, recordings from U.S. government officials that on record say that they wanted to induce Japan to attack the U.S. So the U.S. did many a number of things. They cut off the oil supply to Japan, and they squeezed Japan into a corner to force Japan to attack the U.S. So this would be kind of a false type of a false flag operation. Where, right. Uh, and so the U.S. induced Japan to attack they knew that it was coming. They knowingly left Americans uh, to die, to be killed, to be used as a pretext to enter World War II. Uh, and then, it, as you described Dark, Dark Winter, it almost seemed like it was a simulation for 9-11. Uh, and uh, the anthrax attacks, again, false flag operation. The anthrax came from the right. US government lab. And I've interv interviewed Francis Boyle. Who all, and there's also the academic Graham McQueen, who's written a book uh, on this before, yeah, if you have any other comment before I go on to the next question. Well, um, just bringing up the anthrax attacks themselves, because I didn't really get into that. Um, as you sort of alluded to, it ended up being uh, d determined by the FBI, whose investigation, by the way, is widely regarded as a, as a cover-up. This is the Amerithrax investigation. Their lead investigator uh, resigned and filed a whistleblower lawsuit and said that it was a cover-up. So, a cover-up. Um, but basically, the FBI determined that it was not a foreign source, even though they were greatly pressured to come to that conclusion. Uh, they determined that it had actually come from a U.S. bioweapons lab, specifically Fort Detrick. And as people may know, last year, Fort Detrick had two breaches of containment and then ended up being closed entirely by the CDC for a period of months. The Pentagon hid that from members of Congress, who found out later when media reports uh, revealed uh, this closure to the public. It did not get a lot of mainstream media play. Um all worth considering, as is the fact, too, that 
you know, a, a lot of these bioweapons labs in the U.S. are very willy-nilly about their safety procedures. As an example, Dugway, Proving Ground in Utah, which is also involved in U.S. bioweapons research, they accidentally shipped uh, live samples of anthrax over 80 times uh, in a 10-year period, at least a 10-year period. They say that they learned, first learned about it in 2005, but it's very possible it was going on before then, possibly um, even during the anthrax attacks. I mean, who really knows? There was no... Um, major investigation. And as we know now, you I mean, oftentimes when the Pentagon investigates itself, it doesn't find that it did anything wrong. So um, those are all things worth to consider when, when we look at the anthrax attacks and how actually a lot of people may not remember, but it was the combination of the September 11th and the fear caused by the anthrax attacks that led to 9-11. It wasn't, or led to the war with Iraq. It wasn't just the panic and fear induced by 9-11 itself, but the fact that it was piggybacked so closely by the anthrax attacks um, that for a lot of people ended up pushing them toward supporting the war, right? So it's definitely worth taking that into consideration, as is the fact that not only is this, you know, you, you mentioned um, the background to Pearl Harbor, but also lots of other uh, false flags are, are documented that ended up leading the U.S. into major changes or into war, including the Gulf of Tonkin with the Vietnam War and World War One, also at the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, which was said um, in U.S. media at the time to have been like a civilian ship, even though it was actually later revealed to have been on some sort of military mission and was technically a legitimate military target um, at the time. It was Sankey, but that was, you know, an a lie given to the American public to lie us into war. The U.S. government consistently does this. And so the fact that, you know, they're openly comparing coronavirus to um, 9-11, comparing it to Pearl Harbor, and that's, the, you know, we considering the background of those um, events, it's, it's definitely worth considering um, that something was uh, known in advance and allowed to happen at the very least, if not deliberately induced um, when it comes to coronavirus. So I definitely think, you know, those lines of thinking definitely deserve a lot more um, investigation, exploration, um, you know, by people that really want to know what's going on, uh, because it's abundantly clear that uh, because of this coronavirus crisis, a lot of agendas that have um, been around for a long time are getting a huge boost, and they would not be able to advance as quickly as they are now if we were in a period of relative normalcy. Um, and it appears that this crisis is being uh, milked for all it's worth by uh, various groups of people, whether it's the economic elite or the intelligence community or the military or government insiders. And we can also perhaps look at, include 1898 Spanish-American War and the USS Maine, um, the sinking of that. Yes. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and to look at some of... There's uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there's many more. Uh, and, and it's not only limited to the Americans. You know, we have the Russians in 1999 with the Moscow apartment bombings. And there's academic material saying, you know, the Russians, that they carried out their own uh, false flag operation there. So it's it's a fact of life. It's many governments uh, operate like this. The Roman Empire did the same. The Nazi Germans did the same and so on. Uh, let's look at some of the agendas. Uh, uh, DARPA, you write a lot about DARPA. And th I think this is something that Annie Jacobson calls the, the Pentagon's brain. Uh, pretty much anything you can right. think of in science fiction cinema, DARPA has made a reality. And the list is long of the startling work that they do and a lot of the work that they have done that ties in with COVID-19. Uh, you've written about, I mean, just a few things I'll mention. You've you've written a lot about this, but there's like uh, recently you wrote about these uh, insect allies biowarfare program, which would use genetically modified mosquitoes to spread pathogens. Um, you write about implantable nano platforms and, and vaccines. And it's even... Even funny, I was looking at your Twitter feed and that of Last American Vagabond, where DARPA apparently uh, responded to a tweet 
Bilax, yeah. American <laughs> Vagabond, trying to and uh, mine de- de- as well. Debunk yeah. your latest report. So if you want to tell us about that uh, and, and if that kind of freaks you out, and talk about what are some of the key uh, DARPA initiatives uh, to watch related to COVID nineteen, uh, which might be key drivers in the transformation of our societies into going forward, you know, into this dystopian brave new world. Right. So a lot of dystopian technology is has been in uh, being recent has been researched for years by DARPA going back a couple decades, really starting in the late nineties, getting supercharged uh, during the post nine 11 era by people like Dick Cheney, who were very interested in DARPA's so-called super soldier program, which involves genetically modifying soldiers. Um, so they don't need uh, to sleep or to eat, for example, creating metabolically dominant fighters as DARPA says, and also um, connecting soldiers to machines. And this is basically uh, openly admitted by DARPA that they want to basically put uh, uh, brain machine interfaces into soldiers with the ostensible purpose of having them, uh, of creating thought controlled weapons. For example, a soldier with his mind would send a swarm of drones towards a target and, you know, choose who to kill and, and, and who, you know, who lives, I guess you could say, um, which would obviously revolutionize warfare in a very disturbing way, in my opinion. Um, But what's worth pointing out there is that if you look at the long-term planning of the military, they don't actually plan to have humans in control of targeting, um, choosing targets and and driving these weapons. They say that the soldiers right now, they want to create thought-controlled weapons. But if you look at their long-term planning, they want all of those decisions to, within the next 10 years, be made by uh, artificial intelligence. So at some point... um, That leads me to ask the question, okay, so these brain-machine interfaces they're promoting for soldiers now, what happens to those brain-machine interfaces and human soldiers when AI starts making all the decisions? Does that mean instead of the human, uh, the brain-machine interface uh, with the human brain controlling the machine, does the machine start to control the human brain when when that switch that they say is going to happen at some point in the next 10 years takes place? Um, It's worth pointing out that now um, a lot of these uh, human-machine brain interfaces faces of people have ever looked at them um, are usually in videos they show up as these clunky very clumsy machines but today they are actually injectable um, in the form of nanotechnology and um, even for example it's very interesting that the uh, the Harvard professor who was actually arrested earlier this year uh, for his um, alleged ties to uh, failure to disclose ties to institutes in Wuhan um, Charles Lieber he was actually involved in a uh, very involved in the creation of these brain machine interfaces um, and if you look at reports um, of what he was doing uh, late last year it involved um, advancing these machine brain interfaces and making them inject you know it um, facilitating their their use through, or their introduction to the human body through injections right um so i definitely think that's um <laughs> disconcerting when you consider um the tech the technologies that are being rolled uh, into the candidates for uh, the most likely candidates that are going to be the chosen covid-19 vaccine i say this because very recently um i think just uh, less than a week ago uh bill gates who we know is uh, a major driver of global health policy has said that the uh candidates for vaccines he he is most excited about are rna and dna vaccines 
The companies producing these vaccines um, are CureVac, which is based in Germany. Another one is Moderna, based in the U.S., and Inovio Pharmaceuticals is making the DNA vaccine that's also based in the U.S. All three of these companies, their entire um, vaccine creation platforms were funded by DARPA, and they are all strategic allies. They're in strategic alliances with DARPA. DARPA um, created this technology as part of um, its research into synthetic the creation of synthetic uh, chromosomes or what they call human artificial chromosomes or HACs. Um, and these can be used for a variety of reasons per DARPA. Um, in the case of RNA and DNA vaccines, they say the introduction of this chromosomal material will cause your cells to produce the antibodies um, necessary to fight, uh, you know, whatever virus it is, in this case, COVID-19. But DARPA has also researched these uh, chromosomes for the purposes of extending human life, cutting human life short, augmenting people's cognitive abilities, diminishing people's cognitive abilities. Any type of enhancement you can use with this genetic tweaking, as they call it, you can also move in the opposite direction. And DARPA has openly said that while they most often promote the augmentation capability it can also be used as a weapon to quote-unquote subvert enemy DNA, which I think is very disconcerting um, when you uh, consider the implications of that as a whole. It's essentially a genetic weapon. Also, at the same time, DARPA has been is one of the uh, most prominent institutions in the world that researches a very controversial field known as gene drive research, which most people uh, refer to instead as genetic extinction technologies that involve um, inducing genetic mutations into um, a, a particular species that results in their elimin the, the elimination of their population by making them uh, unable to reproduce, which I think is, um, again, very disconcerting. So, um, What's interesting now is that while the RNA and DNA vaccines for some time have, they, they have said that this is going to be about getting your cells to produce the antibodies, now DARPA has come out and said that they are actually seeking to reprogram genes to make human cells resistant to infection by COVID-19, but they have not disclosed the mechanism they are seeking to induce that would make your cells more resistant. But the fact that they're saying... Um, we're going to reprogram human genes is very disconcerting. Also, DARPA has talked a lot about in relation with its brain-machine interfaces, um, creating a symbiosis between human and machine, not just in DARPA, but in human society, um, and are actually recruiting for a project uh, that they call Next Generation AI that is in furtherance of that goal right now. So... Um, uh, looking at this becomes kind of um, hard <laughs> uh, not to see some sort of dystopian possibilities there. It's also worth pointing out, too, that um, there have been some plans um, in uh, from the Pentagon. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, really quick, I should go back and, and add this. Um, one thing about these RNA and DNA vaccines is that um, when people, they've never been approved for human use before because they have not been able to produce the efficient immune response. And the workaround recently proposed for that is uh, to include nanotechnology. And like I said earlier, nanotechnology that DARPA has been researching can be used to create these brain-machine interfaces. And even when they don't create brain-machine interfaces, they can be used to induce uh, images or sounds directly into the human brain, okay? So I, um, that's definitely worth um, 
pointing out here because the vaccine, as they're promoting it, these RNA and DNA vaccines, they will have these synthetic chromosomes and they will have nanotechnology, all of which was developed by DARPA. I think it's worth considering the other purposes for which DARPA has researched those same technologies set to be combined in the vaccine. And it's also worth pointing out that there were plans um, a few years ago by the Pentagon to create what they called a vaccine against religious extremism. And they plan to use this in the Middle East um, in, in communities they claimed would, you know, be ripe for recruitment by a group like ISIS or someone like that. And the modal, the the way this vaccine would work, um, is that it would target areas of the brain related to spirituality, preventing the onset of religious extremism. So there you go, right there. The Pentagon years ago had a plan, not that long ago actually. I think it was um, maybe three years ago or so. Had plans to create a quote unquote vaccine that worked by modifying permanent Permanently, the human brain and how humans experience uh, something that isn't just exclusive to the Middle East, right? I mean, spirituality, that type of uh, experience is something that humans around the world, I mean, it's just part of being human, right? So it's an attempt to alter uh, human perception and human experience through a vaccine. I think that's definitely worth pointing out. And also, I believe it was during the first invasion of Iraq, uh, there was a plan, of course, it wasn't used, but there was a plan made uh, by the military to try and um, uh, create an image or induce uh, the Iraqi people to see an image of God in order to convince them to accept the U.S. invasion of their country. So the fact that the military has done this type of, you know, dreamt up these types of plans uh, in the past and considering um, DARPA's role in the creation of this vaccine now and the type of technology it's employing, um, I think it's uh, definitely a time for caution, especially considering how quickly they are trying to roll out this vaccine that has never been approved for human use, the category of which has never been approved for human use before, in such a reduced period that it will be skipping animal trials. It already has skipped animal trials in both Moderna and Inovio Pharmaceuticals have already started human trials. Moderna started in March and Anovio started at the beginning of April. Um, those could be available at the end of the year and we will not know the long-term effects of that, um, of those vaccines. And this is very disconcerting, especially when they're trying to openly now say that they, they're hoping to alter people at the genetic level. They say, of course, it's for healthcare purposes, but DARPA consistently, even the most dystopian of their technology, have consistently tried to sell this as um, healthcare. For example, the brain-machine interfaces they first promoted um, in this way, saying it, it will allow uh, soldiers to uh, that are dis veterans that are disabled that lose a limb to use more advanced prosthetics. Then it moved to soldiers using thought-controlled weapons. Then uh, the head of the Defense Science Office, or former head of the Defense Science Office of DARPA, Michael Goldblatt, was asked um, by Annie Jacobson, this, this journalist who um, wrote a book on, on DARPA, um, you know, about these technologies. And he said that he saw no difference between a cochlear cochlear implant that helps the deaf, the deaf hear and an implant in your brain that can control your thoughts. So that's what the leadership of DARPA thinks about these technologies. And they consistently try to sell it as, as healthcare, but they oftentimes have ulterior motives. So I definitely think um, people need to be cognizant of how DARPA views this technology. And if we really want to give um, that type of power 
to people like institutions like DARPA, um, you know, and, and have them use this type of untested technology um, on, on humans uh, in, in this way. And we've heard, you know, so much recently that things will no, not go back to normal until pretty much everyone in the world gets this vaccine. Um, I just think uh, this is ripe for abuse. And um, it seems like a lot of the players here um, would, you know, would be interested in misusing it for their own ends since they're, you know, a lot of these institutions, whether it's the Pentagon or someone like Bill Gates, are just, you know, fundamentally untrustworthy actors, in my opinion. And, and if anyone wants to use the term, you know, talking about these things, conspiracy theory, you know, by the way, I've interviewed Lance DeHaven Smith, who he's a Florida academic who wrote the book on how the term conspiracy theory was essentially created by the CIA to discredit anyone yeah. talking about these, <laughs> these types of things. Um, you can spend a lifetime reading government documents, documenting everything that you, you just said. So everything that you've talked about, people can go and research it from the government uh, and the private sector's own documents. Um, this reminds me a lot right. of the film uh, the films that I watched when I was a child. Uh, Universal Soldier, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren. Uh, I love that movie, but it seems like... They've kind of programmed, put that idea into our heads like decades ago, and now it's coming to, to fruition. You mentioned the religious vaccine. Um, people can find online this video where um, someone's giving a talk about this. I think it was back in 2005. And there's even an accompanying document about this religious vaccine. But um, as often is the case now on the internet, they're trying to say that that was a hoax. But looking at the video, it didn't really... It looks like the, the, the talk was uh, very serious. So I'm not sure if that... Right, that the talk was real, but the hoax is that the person giving the talk was Bill Gates, and that is not true. But the the presentation itself is authentic. Okay, so, <laughs> um, and you kind of freaked me out. I, I wasn't aware that the three vaccine candidate, uh, candidates for the COVID uh, vaccine were has DARPA involved. So, well, there there's numerous vaccine candidates, but those are the RNA and DNA vaccine candidates. And Bill Gates says that the, the candidates that he's favoring, and he's probably going to have a big role and a lot of influence on which ones um, get approved ultimately. Those are he openly said on his uh, own website on GatesNotes.com that those are the uh, DNA and RNA vaccines are you know his favored candidates, and those are the ones being made by those companies, all of which um, you know are DARPA str strategic allies and. Actually, uh, the Gates Foundation and DARPA have been co-investing in a lot of uh, COVID-19 quote-unquote cures, um, including Moderna. Moderna's uh, RNA vaccine uh, has received $100 million from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation since at least 2016. And as I said earlier, they, you know, their whole platform was created with a DARPA grant and has been funded by DARPA. Um, they get tons of funding from DARPA still, right? And then Bill Gates, of course, has put additional money uh, into Moderna's uh, COVID-19 vaccine specifically. And SEPI, uh, uh, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which was was backed by Bill Gates as well, um, when coronavirus, um, you know, was first uh becoming talked about uh, globally in January, they only picked uh, two companies that they were going to fund for COVID-19 vaccines. And those two companies were Moderna and Inovio Pharmaceuticals, uh, these DARPA companies. One important point I think I just bring up quickly that you, you tweeted an article that was fascinating from uh, a few years ago from, I think it was the Jerusalem Post. Uh, and I think it's very important where, uh, an important history where it, it talks about how Adolf Hitler and the Nazis took a lot of their 
ideas from the United States, from America, from oh, yeah. from associations, you know, Rockefeller institutions and other institutions, um, other racist institutions, eugenics institutions in America. So Hitler and the Nazis took these ideas, and we know that there was a lot of funding and support uh, from the U.S. to to the Nazis. And we have now all of these companies that work with the Nazis, to, like IBM, to develop the technology for the Holocaust and this sort of stuff. And we see today, um, I kind of view, for me, what's happening is kind of like a Nazi 2.0, almost on a global scale. And so, you know, we had IBM developing the technology for the Holocaust. And today we have, you know, Microsoft and, and Google and even IBM again, uh, working on this, this new stuff. And so there's this connection that, that, that goes way way back and it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's kind of uh, frightening uh, and you know they're talking about sterilization bill gates talks about sterilization that's what the nazis did um and, and the third world uh, and we see COVID affecting the lower uh, income populations uh, blacks hispanics and so on and so yeah there's people can can go look at that uh, i wanted to move on to the technocracy aspect so you've written about in techno tyranny i think your article about the u.s china ai war and how the u.s uh this is an interesting point that you bring up, how the U.S. is using China as an excuse to kind of bring the Chinese system to America, saying that if we don't test and deploy that technocracy that they have in China, that uh, China will advance and eventually take over the world, which, I mean, there may be some truth to that, but I don't think that's a pretext to take away our civil liberties. Uh, this is also something that Kai-Fu Lee writes about in AI Superpowers, which is a really good book I recommend. Um, I've talked uh, on the podcast about the Chinification of the West for years, and it's happening now. Uh, and you've pointed out recently how technocrats are now being put in charge of remaking uh, our societies. It was just reported that Bill Gates and ex-Google head Eric Schmidt will be in charge of remaking the health and education systems in New York. Uh, these are two men with backgrounds in technology, uh, and they will be directing systems to deal with health and education. And on top of that, you recently tweeted about the DOD discussing the termination of legacy systems and introducing these new AI technocratic systems. What can you tell us about the this techno-tyranny? Well, well, there's definitely a lot there. So basically the techno-tyranny article is about a presentation from May of last year that was developed um, by the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which is headed by Eric Schmidt. Um, and it is also, uh, the vice chair is a close confidant of Eric Schmidt, who is a guy named Robert Work, who is a femer, former Deputy Secretary of Defense. Um, both Robert Work and Eric Schmidt are, are are very close to Henry Kissinger, which I think is worth pointing out, um, because Henry Kissinger also advises this group, and it explains um, that there's actually a slide that uses a quote from Kissinger and offers two possible paths for the U.S. to not uh, fall behind in AI and lose its technolo technological advantage over China. The first involves basically surpassing China in the adoption of AI-driven technologies and surveillance surveillance and technocracy, um, you know, going far beyond what China has implemented even now. Um, and doing it here faster and, and, and more extensively. The second one is uh, basically the Chinese and uh, uh, American tech, you know, te technocrats, the technocratic elite of both countries working together to create a global federation of tech companies that will write the international rule book on AI. And they say if the U.S. is not part of the discussion um, or doesn't come to dominate the field and surpass China entirely, that we will um, not be able to set the international norms on AI and the U.S. will lose its global hegemony, both militarily and economically. And 
the purpose of this National Security Commission is to give recommendations to the federal government and Congress about how to prevent the U.S. from losing its hegemony, specifically in, in technology as it relates to artificial intelligence. It's worth pointing out that, as I said earlier, this was a document that came out last year. This body uh, was created by the 2018 NDAA, and around that same time, the White House was producing all of its policies on artificial intelligence, which have got been dramatically undercovered. Um, some of them include, you know, AI for the American worker and AI for American industry. And, you know, these greatly precede the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And the AI for American worker program, for example, talks about training American workers about how to work more closely with robots and artificial intelligence systems. Um, all very disconcerting when you look at the fact that the coronavirus pandemic has wiped out pretty much all of the obstacles point for point that this uh, National Security Commission on, on Artificial Intelligence document um, calls legacy systems and say that these had to be removed so that these um, AI-driven systems can be widely adopted in the U.S. And these range from things like individual car ownership, seeing an in-person doctor, paying um, for goods with a cash and a credit card, even going um, into a, uh, physically into a store to buy something. Um, all of these things they describe as, as legacy systems that need to be removed so that all of uh, those existing, um, you know, uh, ways of life, I guess, mo uh, you know, methods of, of purchasing or, you know, um, seeing a doctor and all of this stuff, that that is uh, essentially an, an obstacle to uh, their replacement by AI systems and that Americans are distrustful of AI. They see it as a... Um, you know, uh, oh, something that is going to take their jobs. This is what the document says that, you know, the American perception of AI is a problem that Americans need to come to see AI as a tool. And I think it's very interesting that because of this coronavirus uh, pandemic, we're seeing in mass media, a lot of um, uh, a massive, I would say a positive PR push about AI and, in robots and a lot of these technologies, um, um, there's numerous articles that say things like AI is our partner or ally in the battle against coronavirus. Um, a lot of these words like uh, ally, um, ally battle, friend, partner, um, you know, all of this stuff about AI helping us now. You know, it's definitely, I would argue, um, a, a major effort to, to change perception, as is the fact that you're seeing a lot of um, – these contactless, humanless technologies get a huge boost now, whether it's uh, something like telemedicine, um, which involves not physically seeing a doctor, um, or you know, self-driving cars, for example. Because basically what this National Security Commission on AI wants in terms of transportation is to eliminate individual car ownership, replace it all with fleets of self-driving cars that work as sort of an Uber-style ride-sharing network nationally. Um, and uh, because of the coronavirus crisis, in California, for example, the DMV in California rushed through approval for two different self-driving car companies that are now on California roads. And there's also been a lot of positive uh, PR for uh, self-driving cars bringing supplies to people. And oh, look, it brought medical supplies to this little old lady. And oh, look, it brought groceries to this family and things like that, right? Um and what's interesting, a quote I found really interesting was from one of the CEOs of these um, self-driving car companies. And he said, coronavirus has shown us that humans are biohazards and machines are not. And I think this 
type of mentality is going to become much more heavily promoted as time goes on uh, to facilitate the replacement um, of a lot of jobs formerly performed by Americans um, with machines or with technology that does not require a human operator. So the fact that we're seeing this push for a universal basic income, um, that we're seeing record numbers of unemployment, I would argue that a lot of this is intentional. Um, because because of the, because of this crisis, this um, this type of technology that results in massive job loss can be introduced. But they're not blaming technocrats for imposing this on American society. They can blame the virus, right? And I think it's very interesting that if you look on uh, this private sector task force that's advising Trump about when and how to reopen the economy, they're called the. Um, Great American Economic Revival Industry Groups. Um, they have, you know, a different group for each industry. And basically, if you look there, it's all billionaires. All of Trump's uh, top billionaire donors, Sheldon Adelson and Bernard Marcus, are there. The richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, is there. All the big Silicon Valley tech companies that are also on this National National Security Commission for on AI, um, like Microsoft, um, Amazon, Google, Apple, um, they are all represented. Even <laughs> some members of this commission, like Safra Katz, uh, she's also on, on, on these, you know, industry groups advising about the economy. And a lot of these people, um, including Jeff Bezos, for example, I mean, he's openly talked about for years, replacing human Amazon warehouse workers with machines. So um, I definitely think that it's disconcerting that we're seeing that type of overlap, because um, those types of individuals are very unlikely uh, to be concerned about the well-being of regular Americans and are more interested in introducing, you know, robots into the workforce because they don't have to pay robots and they don't have to pay robots health insurance and they don't have to pay for any of that stuff. You know, um, what we saw in the 1980s was the shift of industry overseas because the labor pool was cheaper because, you know, labor in China or Bangladesh is uh, much cheaper than paying an American worker to do the same task. But if you have a machine do that task, you don't have to pay them anything. You just have to pay the upfront cost for the machine and, and maybe some for maintenance. Um, and I think that is, is uh, unfortunately a lot of what we're going to see um, come to f uh, fruition and then what we're seeing now because people um, are not really real are you know a lot of people are still in, in uh, this fear-based mode of thinking um, are afraid of um, you know uh, if they're getting their, their news from mainstream media anyway um, you know are, are looking at this from a, a fear-based um, perspective and not really critically thinking about a lot of these changes um, and are just sort of assuming that the government is working in our best interest. And historically, that is not the case. And as I pointed out, a lot of these so-called quote-unquote solutions uh, to coronavirus that we're seeing rolled out right now were planned out last year, um, including what I mentioned with this National Security Commission on AI, but there's many more examples. For example, the CARES Act, which is supposed to be this coronavirus quote-unquote relief bill, was actually introduced last January under a different name. And the mention of coronavirus was just inserted and then it was passed as this relief bill. Um, it's very similar, I would argue, to the Patriot Act, which was ready long before 9-11, but of course after 9-11 gets rushed through with little to no debate. Um, it's very interesting that the CARES Act, for example, has um, you know requirements uh, or, or, or um, makes things law that don't have anything to do with coronavirus. As an example, um, the Federal Reserve meetings are all secret now and they are now exempt from Freedom of Information Act requests. That doesn't have anything to do do with fighting a virus, right? I mean, it's the Federal Reserve. So um, it's just honestly, um, 
very disconcerting, I would argue. Um, another example that I, I would like to point out as well is that recently we've seen the Department of Justice Attorney General William Barr ask for the right to indefinitely detain Americans because of coronavirus. He was actually looking for the same power last October um, it, under the guise of fighting mass shootings before they, they, they happen, like preventing mass shootings before they happen by indefinitely detaining someone who might commit a mass shooting. And now that mass shootings are no longer scaring Americans, but coronavirus is, in my opinion, he has just moved the justification uh, for that policy to what Americans are currently most afraid of. But the solution is the same. Yeah, I th that's all scary stuff. And again, the trends are all there. And I think people should take note and prepare <laughs> for the road ahead, because it's not going to be easy. A lot of jobs, uh, it's going to be hard to make a living. And I, I don't want to personally be dependent on government money, <laughs> government money and universal yeah, me neither. basic uh, income. Uh, so we're, we're pretty much running out of time. I just have a few easy questions. That was the, everything we covered is kind of the meat of the interview. If you can just give us very brief uh Answers just your thoughts on the China war narrative. Do you feel that we'll go to war with China and have a World War Three, or you think um, that's just uh, the narrative? That narrative is just being used for pushing it through this agenda. Well, I, I think there's um, a couple possibilities there. I mean, if you look at what the Pentagon has been saying for the past couple of years, um, or at least Pentagon officials, they've been saying that China is our number one threat. Um, you know, there's uh, pretty good documentaries out there, like The Coming War on China by John Pilger, that talk about the buildup of military bases surrounding China, um, some of these bases on the Marshall Islands and things like that that are, you know, targeted, um, he argues, targeted at China um, and things like that. I mean, it definitely is possible, but of course, I would argue that... Um, the elite in China and the elite in the U.S. Uh, get along a lot better than we think they do. Um, and I think to a large extent what's going on right now at the finger pointing with, you know, the U.S. blaming China exclusively for coronavirus and China actually blaming the U.S. saying that they brought coronavirus to China at the Wuhan military games and, and things of that nature. What that is designed to do, in my opinion, at least that aspect of the narrative, though it certainly could escalate, um, that has to do with distracting uh, the populations of both countries from what their governments are doing uh, to them at home. So, for example, in the U.S., if everyone is focused on how bad China is and blaming China all the time and demanding reparations for China for this and that, they're not focusing on what their government is implementing, um, you know, that's screwing them over at the same time, right? I mean, if you look at all this bailout money that was supposed to bail out the economy and the American people, it was given to a giant hedge fund, BlackRock, to throw around and none of it's gone to actual uh, medium or small-sized businesses. It's just been a total free-for-all. Um, people, Americans should honestly be outraged about that, but so many people right now are, um, you know, focusing on China and blaming China for all of this. But, uh, you know, uh, that type of policy, that bailout um, policy was not imposed on the U.S. by China. Um, this push towards artificial intelligence-driven economic systems and ways of life uh, was planned last year, and it was not China that made us do it. Um, you know, I mean, this is something that is coming from the top down, and I think, you know, the same thing is, is true in China. If they're all focused on how bad the U.S. is and, you know, look what the U.S. is doing, they're not focusing on what their own government is doing to them, right? I mean, it's just all very convenient. And I think to a large extent, a lot of uh, the real power in the world 
is not at the national level. It's, uh, you know, super national. Um, and that a lot of the elite of the world don't really have any loyalties to individual countries. They have, you know, um, loyalties to themselves and their elite status, which they want to maintain in, you know, the way to maintain that in a, in a world that in a world system that is currently unsustainable is to consolidate control by whatever means necessary. Um, and I think that is the goal of economic elites, both in China and the U S. And I think, you know, if you look at wars historically, um, there have been groups that have funded both sides um, and have profited uh, massively from wars and come out as big winners from world wars when regular people um, suffer tremendously. And I think this is no different. There's a reason that Whitney Webb's uh, articles have gone uh, viral and, and your work has exploded. And I thought the testament to that is recently, I've, again, I've noted on, on, on your Twitter that it seems Washington, even the Washington Post and The Intercept have been seemingly repackaging your original reporting any any thought on that um yeah some well the washington post thing um i haven't really talked about this publicly but there was some uh funny business going on one of my old emails where he outlined for my upcoming part three to my engineering contagion series which is specifically about robert cadlick uh, who I alluded to earlier in, in connection with Crimson Contagion and Dark Winter, it was specifically about him and the company that was part two of my series, Emergent Biosolutions and Washington Post, um, a couple days after my email was messed with, ended up um, publishing uh, a report that was essentially my outline point for point and um, very... Um, disconcerting but they left a lot of they, they left some stuff out um which i think is really telling they left out robert cadlick's at ties to this shadowy consulting firm with ties to intelligence and some other connections to the u.s intelligence and military intelligence communities so what i decided to do is just expand the original article and i'm just going to go back even farther than where i was planning to start the story and um really uh, lay it on thick and show who's, uh, you know, who Robert Cadlick really works for, because the Washington Post just tried to, you know, do a limited hangout of the article uh, plan, basically, and say that the guy was just trying to benefit his old client, this company, in part two. But um, there's a lot more to the story. So um, people can uh, look forward to that coming out. And in terms of The Intercept, I mean, they reported on this National Security Commission on AI, but updated it to include um, the... Um, recent announcement about Eric Schmidt um, being, you know, helping to quote unquote reimagine life in New York and, and all of that. Um, I have uh, Twitter feuds with Glenn Greenwald pretty regularly and have three different intercept writers follow me on Twitter. Um, I think it's kind of odd um, <laughs> that this uh, Freedom of Information Act request a document from this National Security Commission. Um, it's like finding a needle on the haystack on the page of uh, the, the group that ended up obtaining uh, those documents. So, um, you know, in, in my combined <laughs> views on YouTube for my interviews about uh, my Techno Tyranny article about that document are over, you know, 300,000 on YouTube alone. So um, I think it's kind of weird that they would just act like they found it themselves. Um, but, you know, a couple weeks after my article was out. But, you know, I could just be being paranoid there after what happened with the Washington Post uh, incident. But, I mean, who knows? And speaking of limited hangout, you have a brand new podcast that, that just dropped, I believe, three days ago. I was listening to the first episode. It's called Unlimited Hangout. Uh, I don't know if you want to mention something about that. 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a podcast that's basically uh, for people that don't like reading <laughs> to basically do a, a detailed analysis of my uh, my longer form reports, uh, specifically the Engineering Contagion series. So part one is an in-depth um, exploration of the 2001 anthrax attacks and the Dark Winter exercise um, based on my article, All Roads Lead to Dark Winter, which is part one of this Engineering Contagion series I mentioned. Uh, part two I'll be recording tomorrow. Uh, with my co-author on on the, on the series, uh, Raul Diego, who's currently writing for Mint Press News, and we'll be talking about this company, Emergent Bio Solutions, how they're planning to uh, basically get uh, a monopoly over different cures for coronavirus, which they have done in the past with uh, monopolies on the anthrax vaccine, the smallpox vaccine, and the only um, uh, agent that can reverse an opioid uh, overdose. So um, definitely a very shady company with ties to Port and Down the UK bioweapons lab and a lot of shady um, other things, uh, other very shady connections to the Pentagon and military intelligence, the usual suspects and all of that. So um, people can look forward to that um, sometime next week. And you can find all episodes of my podcast uh, from my website, unlimitedhangout.com. But all my articles, uh, written articles are published first at the last American vagabond.com. And afterwards they usually end up on my, on my personal website, but they're published there um, on Ryan's website first. And I guess the last thing is you're, you have an upcoming book uh, on Jeffrey Epstein and you're contributing uh, to Cynthia McKinney's book on the coronavirus, right? Right. Well, um, my contribution to the Cynthia McKinney book on coronavirus is actually just an article that I had written for The Last American Vagabond about um, uh, DARPA and um, U.S. government uh, mili- or U.S. military research related to bats and coronaviruses um, right up until the uh, pandemic began. And then about, um, you know, the history of U.S. Um, involvement in bioweapons research after they say it officially ended and a lot of other things um, in there, including some, um, you know, uh, I, I talk about the the RNA and DNA vaccine DARPA ties to Moderna and Inovio in there as well, but that's going to be basically my contribution to that book. Um, and uh, my book on the Jeffrey Epstein scandal is going to be coming out at the end of the year. Um, it's mainly, it's not just focusing on Epstein, it's basically an overview of the history of intelligence-linked uh, sexual blackmail operations in the United States and placing Epstein in that context. Because without explaining that context, it's it's kind of difficult to understand uh, who Epstein was really working for and what he was really doing. Well, all right, Whitney, you have been added to my list of people who, whenever they publish a new article, I immediately drop what I'm doing and I read it. So keep up the really good work and and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Thank you for, for the invite. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.